This morning, a study that I've entitled, Confronting Covetousness. Now, I know there's nobody in here who actually struggles with other people having better stuff than you have stuff. I know nobody does that in here. I also want to remind you that as we embark on this next little journey through Scripture, that the Lord uh, did not call me on a phone and say, oh, talk about so-and-so. So if it hits home, the rock got flung by God, okay? So don't worry about those things either. And a third thing, remember who the Lord Jesus is talking to. He's now in the presence of a great multitude. This is a huge crowd. So the picture really is, as Jesus has kind of ramped up these teachings, he's now going to attack something near and dear to us. That area of the possession of things, stuff, materialism. And in fact, I think the dangers of this world for us uh, really are tied to the possessions very often that we think are ours but they're actually still His. All of it, the earth and the fullness of it. I also want to make very clear at the onset that God is not directly opposed to you having nice things, okay? So if you have nice things, praise the Lord. It's not about, as I've written here, the bashing of the bountiful blessings. God has given us all things richly to enjoy. And so it's absolutely okay to have a nice house and a nice car. And if God's blessed you with other things, boats and trailers, and I don't really care. If God's given them to you and they're in the right place in your life, praise the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Let me make that very clear at the onset. But at issue in this passage... Uh, is the carrot that doesn't deliver. And I use by way of analogy that all too often used in the past picture of a donkey with a stick tied to his back, angled up over his head, and on it a dangling carrot. And the reason that that analogy is so good in this case is that every place the donkey turns his head, the carrot goes. And yet, he can't ever get the carrot. Amen? With that in mind, we'll be in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. We'll pick up in verse 13. and Let's ask God to bless His Word to our understanding. Father, we thank You for the wondrous ways that you have taken care of us. God, for your goodness to us, we with thankful hearts come and we praise you for having taken such good care of us. And Lord, as we now study your word, would you take care of our hearts and our minds? Would you caress us with the truth, God, this morning? Would you cause these words to become more than ink on page? Cause them to become truth in our hearts and our minds. Father, we bless you, we praise you, we thank you, we give you this time, God. Pray that you would now speak to us through the power of your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look here at these first few verses. And he goes on, and then verse 13 says, One came from the crowd and said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Family of God, I can tell you, from personal, first-hand understanding, that there are very few things that rip apart families like the dividing of inheritances. I, I, can, I could recount to you first-hand story after first-hand story of families literally ripped asunder over money, possessions, cars, houses, boats, planes, you name it. And so this question is a very legitimate question to this day. And it is one asked from the crowd, and so it represents us as the church. The question comes from the crowd. Remember that Jesus is considered a rabbi. 
And as a rabbi, it would be natural for one in the crowd to ask him these types of questions. They were supposed to, as a teacher of God's word, have an answer. And so here he says, but he said to him, speaking to the man, man, kind of like the surf type of answer from Jesus, man, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? Now he's asking a rhetorical question. Of course Jesus is a judge and an arbiter over all of mankind. But that is only good if you are one of his kids. He'll judge you irregardless, but the lesson can't be learned unless it's learned in the heart. And so he says, verse 15, And he said to them, So him, the man asked the question, Jesus gives him a response, causing him to think, well, you know, okay, who is it that makes you judge over me? And then he speaks back, not just to the man, but to the crowd. And notice the carrot that doesn't deliver. And he said to them, take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist of the abundance of the things that he or she possesses. Amen and hallelujah and glory. And maybe we should change our national motto to that verse. Because I would say to you, that there are a vast majority of people who believe that life, in fact, does consist of the abundance of things that one possesses. And the reason I can tell you that is social science says so, our economy says so, the destitution of a vast majority of our population says so, the overemphasis of these things says so. This problem remains a problem to us today maybe in a greater way than it existed then. If there's one message that comes to us in a gazillion seductive voices, it's the message that somehow real life consists in the accumulation of things. It, it, it comes to us in the neon extravaganza uh, that is those things which we see in, in front of stores. Uh, it is the voices that come to us in the message of the advertisers on television. Uh, Connie and I did an interesting thing. Because we like Hawaii, we, we kind of every once in a while will watch Hawaii Five-0. And, and, and I, I've been watching it since I was, you know, I'm still Bookum Dano. And, and it, the old guys, okay? And I started watching the show, and, and because we have the ability to record the program, and we're not really fond of commercials, we decided that we would just fast forward through the commercials. The show was exactly 24 minutes long in an hour. It had more than half of its content in one hour was commercials. And I did it not once, not twice, but several times, and every time it was the same. One time they ran 16 commercials in a row. In a row. Some of them were 10, 20 second little snippets. But it was commercial after commercial after commercial. And then the glorious Hawaiian Islands. I'm like, I just want to see the islands. I don't care about all your stuff. Our TV ads tell us that the ecstasy of life can be had from the possession of stuff. If you just buy that jillion dollar watch, naturally happiness will come to you. Who needs a $10,000 watch? I think they all do pretty much the same thing, amen? Mine happens to tell altitude and barometric pressure and a few other things, but... It's a couple hundred dollars. It's a real expensive one of these. 
You see, we've been told that unless he goes to Jared, he doesn't love us. I mean, come on. It's plastered on the magazine covers. You got to have this. You need to have that. You ladies are dead. Okay? You got to enhance everything. If you're not enhanced, you aren't happy. You got to have this clothes and that clothes, and they got these new slimy garment things. It's like, that ain't even you. We got to have stuff. And you got to have every one of the stuff things. That's what the world tells us. Those jingles on the radio. You remember those little stupid, catchy songs, amen? I could, this is how bad it is. From when I was this tall, I can still remember the Ham's Beer song. Okay? In the land of Scotland, waters. I still remember these things. They affect us, don't they? Except back then it was a cute little dancing bear who ran around and went over to the stream and got his water for the beer. This is what the world does to us. This is the enemy going, you need these things. you got to have this stuff right now. And if you don't, you're missing out. But you can't catch that carrot, can you? You can never have enough stuff. And for those of us that have maybe had more stuff than others and lived long enough to regret the stuff, you want to see how much stuff you have? Go in your garage if you've got one here in Running Springs. And you look in those boxes if you don't have a garage. Go in your build-up because that's where it'll be. Now it's covered with mold because it's wet underneath there. But go in your precious boxes and open them up and see how many multiples of things you actually have. Spare bed. I don't even know why we save these things. And we go and buy a new one, don't we? We give away a perfectly good one and go buy a new one, don't we? And I'm not ripping on anybody. I've done it myself. You can't catch that carrot. H. H. Ross Perot said it this way. He was quoted in Fortune magazine. He was talking to the editor of that magazine. And by the way, he's a multi-billionaire. He's got a couple of bucks. Generally knows what things are like. He said, guys, just remember... If you get real lucky, if you make a lot of money, if you go out and buy a lot of stuff, it's going to break. you got your biggest, fanciest mansion in the world that has air conditioning. It's got a pool. Just think how many pumps there are to go bad. Or go to a yacht basin anywhere in the world. Having had a large boat, amen to what follows. Nobody's smiling. They are the bitterest meanest, nastiest people on earth that, that hang around in yacht basins generally because all they're worried about, i got to go oil my teak. i got to go fix this. You only float the boat into the water and go do something with it about twice a year and you spend the whole rest of the year working on it. Generators out, the microwave doesn't work. And so he said at the end of that interview, things don't make you happy. Amen. You see, Satan loves our love of stuff. He loves our love of stuff. Because it's true, the love of that stuff, and again, I'm not talking, and neither is Jesus, about the blessings that the Lord brings to your life. I'm talking about the accumulation of things for the sake of feeling like they will bring you some measure of satisfaction, some measure of worth, some relative perspective on life that says, look, I've arrived. I now have home ownership. Did we not just get a lesson on home ownership in the last like five or six years? You know, for since I was knee high to a toadstool. I don't even know how tall that is, but it's short. Knee-high to a toadstool. 
Oh, own a house, do this, do that. And then all of a sudden, the bottom drops out of the market because they're being valued way more than they're actually worth. And all of a sudden, half of the United States of America, half of the population of the United States of America lost more than 50% of their net worth in five years. I think it's because we started to value stuff and things more than the Lord. Satan loves stuff. And if you'll know, he dangles that carrot. It's an exact statement. Life does not consist in the abundance of the things that one possesses. But from every measurement that our world has today, one would think that that's not true. That in order to really be happy, you got to have stuff. And so let's look at this whole story. He tells a parable to illustrate it now. And let's reread it. And then one came from the crowd and said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. You need to settle the things that we can't settle together because we're both greedy. It's a better way to look at it. But he said to him, Men, who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you. And then he said to them, Take heed, beware of covetousness. In other words, desiring things that someone else has. Do you get it? Desiring things that someone else has. Whether that's Macy's or Nordstrom's or such and such a car dealer or ex-home builder or whomever. It could be money. It could be stuff. It could be things. The fact of the matter is covetousness is to desire something that you do not currently have that someone else currently has. And that's why we're not to covet other people's spouses as well. Amen? Are not yours. They never will be. Didn't God, God did not intend you to have that person as your spouse. You can see the principle carries over into almost all areas of life, actually. But he's speaking very specifically about possessions here. And so he says, beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. And then he spoke a parable to them, saying, So he's illustrating the point with the parable. Do you see it? He is illustrating the point with the parable. And I want you to look at this now, and it's very clear in the parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And then he thought within himself, saying, and here it comes. What does it say in the first sentence? The dude is well off. His already existing stuff was more than sufficient. It yielded plentifully. He was well taken care of. He had no needs. Check it out. And he thought within himself, saying... And probably some of you are going, man, I'd like to have that problem. I would love to have too much stuff so that I'd have to worry about it. Many of us can identify with that thought. What shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? He's been blessed. He's got a problem. But the problem isn't the crops. The problem is the heart. And so he said, I will do this. I'll pull down my barns. Is there a plural in barn? Yes. It's barns. He's already got more than one. That would be many more than anyone else generally had. This guy was already rich. He was already prosperous. And furthermore, the barns were working already. They weren't bad barns. They were good barns. He's going to tear down perfectly good barns. Isn't that America? 
Now, I don't know how many of you are infuriated over the handicap ramp over there by the post office. If you've driven by there, they have now poured that thing three times with your tax dollars. Well, it wasn't the right color. You know, I mean, it's like, uh, you know, we need to put a little rubber thingy at the end because when you get your wheelchair down to the end of it, you know, you want to have that rumble strip so that you can tell you get, in case you happen to be in a wheelchair and actually blind as well. And I'm not picking on anyone with a disability here. This is the insanity of stuff. Because it's not their money, it's your money. And because of the accumulation of stuff, it's okay to spend your money about as stupid as anyone could ever spend it. Because you know what happens when somebody in a wheelchair goes by? They go down the street. It's shorter by about 40 feet. And it's less steep. We tear down perfectly good things to build another thing. And it's dumb. How about that project over on the 10 freeway? And I'm not picking on Caltrans. One was county, one was Caltrans. I'm picking on them both. Again, your money. When you're driving by at not the speed limit, because none of you drive the speed limit in Jesus' name, 65, 70 miles an hour, how much of that artwork that you paid a few million dollars to see on that concrete that's over on the railroad right away, do you actually get a chance to look at that could feed people who don't have food? Do you get it? We have gotten so wealthy that we spend money on stupid stuff that makes absolutely no sense. Now, I like murals. I like artwork. But when I'm driving at 65, 70 miles an hour, because I'll be run over if I don't, I am not looking sideways at a wall of concrete that's eight inches from my face. It's dumb as bricks. And yet, this is our society. We spend endless amounts of money on stuff that does not matter and was perfectly okay the first time. Okay, I'm done ranting. Sort of. Maybe. And build greater. And there I will store all of my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, look where this goes. Do you see the connection between stuff and people thinking they can be spiritually satisfied? The accumulation of stuff. And now I will say to my soul. Say to my spirit, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, Raka, fool. Actually is best translated, idiot. Might as well get it right if we're going to talk about original language. But idiot's kind of offensive. I like idiot better, actually. Fool's kind of the nice way of saying, you're an idiot. You're an ignoramus. Your brain needs an upgrade. Fool. This night your soul shall be required of you. You see, we don't know we're going to leave this earth, do we? God does. And in the accumulation of stuff, thinking that that's going to satisfy you, not only now, but in the future, do you see it here? That his soul was supposedly going to be satisfied in the accumulation of stuff, and thereby he would be okay forever. Probably not one person in here doesn't know somebody who was maybe promised some type of retirement that they didn't quite work out that way. Amen? Or perhaps you were one of those people who were counting on the continual elevation of the housing market. 
They just go up forever. There were people who banked their family security on the fact that the housing market would just climb forever, that somehow houses would be worth their, oh, sure, it's only 1,200 square feet. It's worth $2 million. Who cares? In whose economy? In Satan's economy. Because we look at these things, and again, in Jesus' name, houses are very valuable assets. And frankly, all of you should have one, especially now that the market is down and the interest rates are down. It's a great time. It's very wise to own one, but it is not wise to put your hope and your trust in that house. It's not wise to put your hope and your trust in a bank account. It's not wise to put your hope and your trust in your career. How many people who have had great careers all of a sudden for downsizing because we've shipped everything to China now no longer have that job? How many people, because now the economy has completely changed and so many jobs that were once well-paying jobs are now done by robots, never saw that coming? Can I tell you that God saw it coming? He's known that the abundance of possessing things will not bring you joy to your soul. And so he says, This night your soul will be required of you. And then those whose will those things will be, which ones will they have you have provided, is the way that reads in the Greek. In other words, all of this gymnastics that you've done with your head, it's the craziest sentence in your entire Bible, by the way. He's literally trying to confuse them, by the way this was originally spoken in the Greek. He makes it intentionally confusing. You don't even know whose it is, and yet you put your faith and hope and trust in it, but you don't know whose it's going to be. That's what it actually says in English. Something that you don't even know, because they weren't in Christ, so they thought it was theirs, but it was actually His. Amen? And then you assign it to someone else, and it's not theirs either. And in the end... Guess who's going to get it? Whoever's here during the tribulation. So I've said frequently and often, whatever cult wants to take this over after we're gone, more power to you because you're going to find a bunch of Bibles left in the building. Amen? (laughs) Might make some sense to you then. It's all God's. And He simply lets you have it for a period of time as He's steward. It doesn't belong to you. It still belongs to him, and he may choose to take it from you and give it to somebody else. And at the end, it's still his. It's still not yours, and you don't get to take it with you. And so the Lord Jesus just sits there and he says, you know, wow, I need to think about these things. Verse 21, and so is he who lays up treasure for himself. You get it? Do you see the correlation? This guy's all worried about the inheritance. And then when you look at the inheritance, it's obviously large, and it's growing. And they've obviously put their trust in the inheritance. And Jesus is saying, you silly person. Nobody's going to ask you how much. When Bill Gates takes his last breath, nobody's going to care how much money he died with. Nobody. Matter of fact, most of the people who are left here will fight over it. They'll argue, they'll haggle, they'll try and find out whose stock was whose. And so he says, and so is he who lays up treasure for himself. And notice this, he makes it very clear what we're to do with our resources. And is not rich toward, circle that word, God. In other words, that our hearts are not to be greedy and self-seeking, but they're to be giving towards the things that God finds purposeful, useful, 
kingdom-oriented. And of course, the chief way that we do that is through our giving. It's a principle you can't escape. The rich towards God are also the biggest givers, is the way to look at it. They look at these things like, I only get to borrow these for a while, they're actually God, so I better make sure that I'm doing with His stuff what He wants and not what I want. And the odd thing that happens is that the Lord entrusts with you more things. I read the latest Barna poll. It was actually done in 2012. And there's some things here that are going to kind of shock you, and I can tell you that. In the church today, 12% of the church provides for the needs of 93% of the giving that's done in church. 12% provides 93% of the giving. 46% of all people who regularly attend church do not give to the Lord's work at all. Never. Eighty-nine percent of all people responding to the question as to why they don't give. I can't afford to. Family of God, that tells me something about the church. We have the wrong view of money. We have the wrong view of possessions. Because they're not mine. They're His. And when I see my things and my possession that way, then God can do whatever He wants with them. And he can make 90% last longer than 100%. He can take the blessings of everyone else, including the wicked, and give them to you. But if you are unfaithful towards the Lord, if you possess this same heart that this rich guy did, then you're going to get what he got. And so as we look at some of these things... I would also remind you that atheists and agnostics, as a group of people, on average, give less than $100 a year to any cause. ASPCA, whatever. So people without faith are the most greedy of all. And so the Lord begins to unwrap this for you. I was looking also at a number of things. I would remind you that there in verse 14, the you is plural. It means you both. And the reason that Jesus was asking this rhetorical question was it was a heart question. And the brothers had a heart problem, and no answer that he could give in a practical sense was going to solve the heart problem because it was a heart problem. It wasn't who had what. It wasn't who had more than the other. It was the fact that one did not trust the other to do what is right, and the other did not trust the one to do what was right, and thereby they both thought that they should take advantage of the situation. This is greed 101. This is our world at work today. And I will tell you that it is in fact an American sickness Materialism, the quest for stuff. 2010 report, that's the last one that I could find. It was done by U.S. News and World Report on the ten things that we couldn't live without. Check this out. The respondents, over 40,000 of them, were asked a single question. What ten things could you not live without? These are the responses in order. Number one, top of the list, personal computers. If we didn't have those, we might actually have to talk to each other at Starbucks. High-speed Internet access was number two. I mean, after all, you don't want to get your spam slow. Smartphones. I don't know about you, but I feel a little bit uneasy about carrying something in my pocket that's smarter than I am. Number four, higher education. 
because you'll have trouble finding a job. Oh, that's right. You have higher education. You still don't have a job, and you have debt. Again, I'm not against higher education, by the way. For some people, I think it's exactly what they should do. But I think if you're getting a degree in kinesiology or uh, liberal studies, my personal favorite, you might think about whether you actually want to have $100,000 of debt to get that degree. Movies was number five. I mean, after all, who wants to turn the pages of comic books? That's hard. TV. These are the top ten things. I mean, after all, you've got to have 1080p HD and a 72-inch screen. Otherwise, you won't be able to know what you need. Amen? Wow, I didn't know I needed that. Music downloads. Think of that one for a second. You know, I, I grew up in the... I used to have an 8-track tape deck in my, my 1959 Dodge Lancer. Tape deck weighed 814 pounds, and the trunk was where I kept all the tapes until they melted from the heat because the car was black. Because you got to have it instantaneously. You don't want Rihanna to not be able to speak that truth into your life, you know. I get my morality from Taylor Swift. Want to make sure I'm getting all that, like right? I got to have it. Number eight. Pets. You people are sick. You know why that is? Because we ain't having no babies anymore, so we need another source of cute. Think about it. How many people have substituted pets for children? And let me just be blunt with you. They ain't the same. Especially if you have cats. Not the same as children. Number nine. You'll love this one. Alcohol or booze. Now we can throw pot into that category. You want to make sure you go through life dumber than you really are. (laughs) And the only legitimate one on the entire list, coffee. (laughs) That's the top ten. I see some of you praising God back there in the back row. That's the top ten things. Coffee and cats. The two C's. This is where we are, folks. Notice things missing like family, food, church, God, my Bible... Did you see anything missing from that list that might kind of sort of be a bit more important? You don't think that we're sucked into material to coveting things? You see, covetousness has crept in and it's created an unquenchable thirst. And by the way, let me be really clear. Jesus made it very clear that we have basic needs there in Matthew chapter 6, that he will meet, verse 31, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after these things the Gentiles seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. So God is not at all ignoring our needs. But I'm pretty sure that we don't need, you know, a 17-foot TV screen in our living room. I'm pretty sure. We have a nice TV. I like my TV. I like watching sports on my TV. So I'm not talking about the, the things that we have. But how many people go out and put their family in debt for the next new TV? 
I watched a dude coming out of Costco that had a TV that's bigger than my car. I'm serious. I'm like, the box of that TV was like this. It was like six feet tall and nine feet long. It's like, where's he hanging that? In his man cave. And in fact, God says to us in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches. Those riches we possess are uncertain, folks. You may have them today and not tomorrow. That's why the, the case is being made here. Be careful what trust you put in them. Mark Twain wisely said, He defines civilization as the limitless multiplication of unnecessary necessities. Amen. Pretty wise guy, that Samuel Clemens. You you, you see, there's a couple of things for you. This comes from the World's Bank calculations on international wealth and prosperity with regard to poverty. You can just simply go to the World Bank site, look up these studies for yourself. If your family income, you sit here this morning, your family income is $10,000 a year or more, you have more income than 84% of the entire world. You will make double that on public assistance. Double that. If you make $50,000 a year or more which is lower than the average family income in our state. The average family income. That's not wealthy. That's virtually all of us. You may be saying, well, I'd like to make that. Maybe you don't now, but that is the average in our state. You are wealthier than 99% of the entire world. That's directly from the World Bank. Ninety-nine, that puts you, you are a one-percenter. Okay? All you didn't know, you were all one-percenters. You're all one-percenters. In other words, there are 6.4 billion people on the planet doing worse than most of us. You want a real treat, you can go to www.globalrichlist.com and you'll see a thing there where you can either put in your annual income or your accumulated wealth, your possessions. In other words, the value in your house, those things which we would call uh, your net worth. Plug those in. I challenge you, go do it. If you have computer access, when you get home, go do it and find out where you sit. Your individual situation with regard to the rest of the world, you're going to be shocked. You're going to probably need to repent, actually. I know I did. I'm like, really? Now, in saying all this, I I freely acknowledge that probably some of you in here don't feel like that's the case. But that's actually the case compared to all of humanity. And yes, that includes those who live in mud huts in Africa. And yes, that includes people who choose to not work. It includes everybody. But the simple fact of the matter is, when we look at it from God's perspective, he's looking at it from the position of need, not wants. And so several things, and I want to wrap this up there quick. You can look at them. How do you respond first and foremost to the dilemma of the farmer? You see, contentment, just as Philippians 4 says, is the issue. How do you respond to it? Because he was already rich. He already had more than everybody else. Y'all got more than everybody else. All of us do. There's probably not one person sitting in here that isn't in at least the 84 percentile range of wealth relative to the rest of humanity. Do you understand what I'm saying? And yet we whine, we groan, we complain, and we covet. And family, we need to stop. Because God isn't going to bless it. He's not going to bless it. 
I wish I had that problem, maybe some of you were saying. But when you look at these things, you can see that contentment is it. Philippians 4, not that I speak with regard to need. Paul says, I've learned how to be content in whatever state I'm in, whether I've got much or little. You, you, you see, we kind of need to do a little bit of a, of a self-diagnosis, if you will. If you inherited that wealth, you, you need to realize that with it comes some real pratfalls, some pitfalls, some possibility uh, that you may actually not be doing okay after you get more. If your heart's wrong, so I've shared with you before, uh, we kind of know what it's like to run in a, in a different crowd. We were in business. We ran with some very, very, very wealthy people. We ourselves had a lot of stuff, but it almost killed us. It did destroy my mom. My stepdad went to his grave just like this guy. You see, Proverbs 30 says, and Solomon, who asked for wisdom and got it, amen? Two things I request of you, speaking of God. Remove falsehood and lies, and neither give me poverty nor riches. He says, don't give me one or the other. Don't really want to be poor, but I sure don't want to be rich anymore, because it's scary. In the parable of the soils, there in Matthew chapter 13. And now it says in verse 22 that he who received the seed among the thorns is like he who hears the word. And the cares of the world, and notice this, the deceitfulness, the deceptiveness, the falsehood of riches choke. How many people do you know whose lives have had the word of God choked out of their life because of the things they possess? That's the reason they don't go to church. That's the reason they don't read their Bible. That's the reason they left their wife or their husband. That is the reason that they state to you that they have to keep their finances separate. No, we can't join them together. You know, we got this thing going over here and that thing going over here, and it destroys their life. can create a snare there in 1 Timothy 6. It is the root of all kinds of evil. And as you look at these things, notice how it affected his decisions. We might say, ah, he's being shrewd, he's being businesslike. But what he was doing was setting himself up for a disaster. He was worshiping stuff. He was living for stuff, and it was actually going to cost him his life, and he didn't even know it. How many people in the quest for stuff throw their life away? Crazy decisions. There's nothing wrong with having stuff until you start to trust in the stuff more than in the true and the living God. Amen? And for those that have, you know this is true. Look at the desires. Look where his desires are. Ah, now I'm good. He wasn't good, was he? Isn't that fake? That's the way it works. Oh, now I'm good. I've got this or I've got that. I finally made this amount of money. I finally bought this size house. I have that kind of car. And in fact, God is saying, fool. Wrong desire. If you would just desire me and my righteousness, all these things will be added unto you, Jesus said. If you'll have an eternal perspective, then the earthly one takes its proper place. But if you don't have an eternal perspective, you can have all the stuff on earth and still have nothing. And so he finishes with a very, very, very simple thing. You you see, your wealth is supposed to be enjoyed and employed at the same time. Take the stuff you have, praise God you've got it, and then employ it for the kingdom. Because it's God's. It's not yours, never was. And I would encourage you to read that promise of Malachi 3. You see, otherwise, it's kind of like trying to ride a dead horse. You see, the Lakota Sioux Indians had this picture of it. If your horse was ever dead, when you discover that you're riding a dead horse, the best strategy is to dismount. (laughs) Pretty wise, amen? 
So if you find yourself on it, their ideas get off the horse. But we do things like buy a stronger whip. We'll we'll just beat it. We change riders. We appoint a committee to study the dead horse. We arrange a cultural visit to other countries to see how they handle the dead horse. We realize that the horse might be just simply living impaired. It's not actually dead. You hire an outside contractor. You you outsource it. Let them ride the dead horse. You provide additional funding and training for dead horse education. You do a productivity study to see if the dead horse's output can be improved. You rewrite the performance report so the dead horse looks like it's alive. And my personal favorite, promote the dead horse to supervisor. Family of God, trusting in stuff, is riding a dead horse. It's dead. It's not going to be alive. He's alive, and you're alive in Him. And if you will do what He asks you to do, you'll experience that abundant life. You'll have what you need, and you'll have enough to give. That's God's plan. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time this morning. We pray as we think on these things, God, that you'll just give us the right perspective on stuff, God. Help us to not be carried away by it or enamored by it, Lord. Help us to never serve it. Help it to not be our master. Lord, let us have your mastery over it. We pray that you would give us, Lord, richly all things to enjoy. Thank you, God, for taking care of our needs. And we pray, Lord, that we would just simply commit uh, this area of our lives into your tender care. God, we love you and we thank you for this morning. Lord, thanks for teaching us and instructing us. Pray that you'd bless us, Lord, as we leave this place, as we give to you, Lord, generously and hilariously. We pray that you'd receive it. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.